Hey there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyper-local, progressive podcast focused exclusively on Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Dan, and today we got a special guest in the studio. Hi, my name's Ed Yu. I'm the Director of Strategic Research for the New York State Nurses Association. And today we're going to be talking about healthcare for the first time on the podcast, which is kind of a weird moment to be talking about this. We've been trying to get this episode out. I know, it's been a little while, yeah. (laughs) And now all of a sudden it's like, well... We're recording this on March 12th. The coronavirus has just been declared a pandemic. And uh, I think this is one of the weird moments where, oh, shit, all of a sudden healthcare is a very topical discussion to have. Our procrastination worked out pretty well, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> Back in October, we were like, oh, shoot, we got to do this episode. And I guess we should start with what we were originally going to be talking about. Yeah. Um, we're probably going to connect into a couple of different things throughout this episode, but you had just sent me a slack about the old victory memorial hospital That's right just in case people don't know or you're new to the neighborhood victory memorial or the baby hospital was up in the 90s is right opposite the uh, duck pond at poly prep it was bay ridge's hospital for the longest time it was our local hospital uh you didn't go to nyu langone or miamides you went to victory memorial a lot of the old school People in the neighborhood would be like, oh, I was born at Victory Memorial. I'm a real Bay Ridger, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but that closed, geez, what, like 2000s? It closed a while ago. Yeah, it was ago. like 2008, something yeah. like that, 2007. So part of it got sold off and it's a nursing facility. Another part kind of got spun off into another thing. But most of that building is empty yeah. at this point. Yeah. And there's attempts right now at getting something new in there. That's right. So... First of all, I was born there (laughs) and I moved back here like 30 years later. Um, But I think that New York in the late aughts, basically, was trying to figure out how to reorganize its healthcare system to save on cost because Mm. cost is one of the big drivers of how we make decisions about healthcare in this country. So Victory Memorial was part of a group of hospitals that closed as a result of this initial push to redesign our system, Mm. basically to really save on public payers. So what I mean by that is like Medicaid, for example, and other public funding streams that help finance what are called struggling hospitals. So (sighs) Victory was in this category, right? Hmm. Because balance sheet was poor. You called it the baby hospital. I think that's appropriate. (laughs) I think you went to deliver a baby or if you needed truly emergent care and you needed to be immediately stabilized, you went to Victory Memorial. So Mm -hmm. your population was either OB patients or the elderly. So what is happening now, like you said, that site has been largely unused. There is an urgent care that's run by SUNY Downstate, and there is also a long-term care facility. What they want to do now, and Maimonides has proposed this, and they've actually been approved, so it's not even been proposed. They're going to build an off-campus emergency department there. All right. So that's an ER, basically? Yeah. It's an emergency room with no inpatient capacity, essentially. So you go there, and it looks like an emergency department, but if- you need to be admitted to the hospital. They can't do that. Because there's no hospital behind it. That's correct. They'll have a few beds there for a quote-unquote observation mm-hmm. if they need to keep you there to see if you remain stable. But it's not a long-term solution. If you need to go to the hospital, they're going to then port you over to Maimonides. So it's kind of a revolving door thing where you know you go in, you get stabilized, and then ambulance out to MIMO. Or another more likely scenario is you go there because you feel like you need to access some kind of caregiver scenario, whether you have a cold or something or bad flu Mm. or bad fever. You feel like you need to see somebody, but you don't have a primary care physician and you need primary care. 
a lot of yeah. people just end up going to the ED. It's also the case for folks who don't have great insurance. They'll, they'd yeah. rather go to the ED than figure out billing through a primary care provider. It's There's a whole slew of scenarios mm-hmm. that leads to somebody walking into the ED. What we see in these situations is the hospital or hospital system will try to mitigate this inflow of patients that are quote unquote sick, but aren't truly emergent. They're not, there's mm. not an emergency situation in the sense of like, you know, there's like a trauma. Yeah. Or something. So Maimonides is taking the opportunity to, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but when they gave testimony to the Department of Health at the state level, they said they want to mitigate some of the walk-ins that they get to the emergency department further down in borough park yeah i was around when victory closed and one of the things that they were saying about shutting victory memorial was we're going to see er visits increase in all of these nearby local hospitals we shouldn't shut it down this is one of the core things that it provides even though it's an underperforming quote-unquote hospital they definitely saw a spike in ED visits when Victor Memorial closed. They did cite that as one of the reasons that they wanted to do this to mitigate the overflow that they're yeah. seeing at their main ED in Borough Park. And don't quote me on this, but that percentage was really high. It might have been close to 100 that they saw that increase in visits mm-hmm. to the emergency department. And across the city, we have some of the busiest emergency departments in the country. There's a hospital, for example, in the Bronx, Montefiore, where they routinely have patients warehoused in the hallway because they don't have enough available beds. Maimonides is clearly saying that we feel that there's a need to have a place in Bay Ridge where people can go to, because then we can sort of divert them away from the main hospital if all they need is Tamiflu. You see what I mean? Yeah, because Bay Ridge is a naturally occurring retirement community, lots of trips and falls, Absolutely. put a splint on, like cuts, things that ideally you aren't like, don't want to say clogging up, but you don't want to be one of those people online in ED. And then there's a person who needs real emergency care on the back of that line. We hear a lot of stories in the press about patients that spend a lot of time in the waiting room or a lot of time in triage that are waiting for a bed to become available or just waiting to be seen yeah. because the ED gets so busy at certain times of the year, certain times of the day. But I will say this. One of the things that we need to remember in this scenario is an off-campus emergency department, if you have a truly emergent situation, the status, I believe, is called ACLS. Patients with that status in the ambulance, they won't even bother taking you to this kind of yeah. station along the way. Because they know that that's just going to be a delay in your care. Absolutely. Because you're going you. there to get stabilized, but they're going to have to take you right back out. Exactly. If you're in an ambulance in a truly emergent situation, they're not going to take you to this location. They're going to take you right to the nearest emergency department. You know, if it's a Maimonides ambulance, they're going to take you to Maimonides. In this case, we saw what was a reduction in hospital capacity in this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And then more than 10 years later, a provider who had to deal with the fallout from that closure comes along and says, oh, well, let us build this brand new thing for you where this old hospital used to be. It's going to be literally like a fraction of the resources you used to have. And you're going to thank us for it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, And I want to be clear. It is a good thing that this is happening because to kind of bring it forward to the present, now that we're dealing with what you described as a pandemic, something that if we don't contain the spread will really overwhelm our healthcare system pretty quickly. We need all the resources we can get. We need every single facility we can get. And to demonstrate what I mean by this, even in a quote unquote peacetime situation where everyone's health is relatively ebbing and flowing at the normal rates that we see with the flu and whatnot, 
There were still people going to the old Victory. Yeah. Thinking that it was an emergency department. We saw that in some of the data that we have access to at the union. And it's really astonishing because there is this cultural memory embedded in the community yeah. about what that hospital used to be. That's something that was talked about during their presentation. There were some good questions made from the panel that was overseeing their application process and the general public, which was talking about drive time, a sick person transporting themselves yeah, or a sick person getting transported by an ambulance from this neighborhood to Maimonides or Lutheran. They're both pretty close, like as the crow flies. But we all know how traffic gets down here. Yeah. And we've all seen the ambulances sitting in clogs of cars all along major thoroughfares. And I think that minutes really matter. Yeah, yeah, much less a person who's driving themselves. And it's literally the opposite. Like right now, we're kind of in like the 70s, 80s. I would be driving 10, maybe 15 blocks south yep. to get to there and then have to go right back over my same tracks in an ambulance when they're like, oh, shoot, we can't help you here. We need to immediately take you somewhere else. Right. And that's minutes, tens of minutes to get actual care when you thought you had already arrived. Yeah. And one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is the status of the facility itself. It's an off-campus emergency department. Yeah. And that sounds weird. I've never heard that before. Yeah. it's uh, They also call it freestanding EDs, uh, freestanding ERs in other parts of the country. And I think for rural areas, this was actually a pretty cool innovation because mm -hmm. where you don't have provider density, it really created a situation where people could get stabilized if they're 50, 100 miles away from the nearest acute care facility. Yeah. So it really was a boon for rural areas to see freestanding emergency departments pop up that could stabilize them and give them access to certain kinds of care that they would have to drive potentially hundreds of miles to get to. The thing that gets tricky here is this is an untested and unproven model in urban settings. The results are mixed in terms of how effective they are in urban mm -hmm. settings. The things that clinically people say would happen when these things pop up in rural settings aren't happening in urban settings. Mm. Wait time being reduced in emergency departments, quicker access to vital healthcare services. We're not seeing this happen in urban areas where freestanding emergency departments are popping up. Yeah. So the Department of Health is letting what is a relatively untested model for urban areas propagate in New York City. I'm not saying that this is overall going to be a bad thing because we've had over 20 hospital closed in New York City over the last 20 years. And that was part of that like right-sizing initiative under like multiple governors. Mainly under this one, actually. So... I want to go back to 2008 now. There's a man named Steven Berger. He was not a healthcare person. He comes out of finance. He was asked to head a commission called the Berger Commission. The Berger Commission was designed to study how to address hospitals that were financially underwater, mm -hmm. that were not performing up to standard. Now, unfortunately, what Steven Berger's conclusions were, were that New York City was overbedded with hospitals. <laughs> yeah, overbedded. And made recommendations that several poorly performing facilities would either have to become merged into larger health systems or close outright. So you saw a spate of closures in like a five or six year period. Yeah. In Brooklyn, a really big closure that a lot of people are familiar with because it launched Bill de Blasio's mayoral campaign in many ways was the closure of Long Island College Hospital. Yeah. And the big debate at the time was, yes, financially struggling hospital. Does the community need it? The community would say yes, but quote unquote experts were saying, well, there's another hospital like a few miles down the road that is bigger, that could potentially care for you. All you have to do is go a little further. 
But what they didn't realize, I truly believe Steven Berger didn't realize this. When he was calculating his overbetting number, people started to realize that he was looking at the license capacity that a hospital is allowed to operate at, which is usually not the level at which they're currently operating. Yeah. So he was saying that we were thousands of beds over capacity, but a hospital might be licensed to operate a thousand beds, let's say for the big ones. Yeah. They might only have 950 or 900 in operation at the time because beds come in and out of service as they think about their service mix every year. Yeah. So now we're faced with the situation where as hospitals look to expand their resources and mm. in, in these areas where they've been tasked to redesign healthcare, for example, they're making petitions to state regulators and to economic development corporations saying, this neighborhood is underbedded. I remember hearing that at a bond hearing where a hospital, Mount Sinai, was trying to get financing for a refurbishment of its Queens campus. They literally said two years after all this- all Of birth, overbedding. Of overbedding. They said, oh, Queens is underbedded. It's like, oh, this school has too many seats right now, so let's shut the school and you get rid of all of this public yeah. facility and a lot of expensive infrastructure, yep. and you can't really easily build that back. Once a hospital surrenders its operating license to DOH, that community loses it forever. And yeah. the only way to get it back is if another operator comes in and says, we want to build a hospital here and petitions the Department of Health for a license to operate in that location. So when Victor Memorial closed, they lost hundreds of beds of hospital capacity yeah. that was just taken out of the system. A lot of people say it's fine to go to Lutheran or to Maimonides because they're relatively close. But when there's an actual strain on the system where more people are using these facilities because of an outbreak than during, like, I'm going to use the term again, peacetime, yeah. <laughs> you're going to see that being two miles away will make a difference, especially if the hospital's full. Yeah. And anyone who lives in a city and not a rural area knows that a shock to an urban system is exponentially larger and needs a lot more cushion. Yeah. We know that in climate change. We know that in education. We know that in so many things, a transit. But we designed our healthcare system to just operate exactly within the black margin for profitability. And it's really unfortunate that that's the measure of success because when my organization especially looks at how our employers behave, you're not seeing planning that's always driven by health outcomes in a community. You're seeing planning that's driven by maximizing their margin and profits, right? Yeah. You know, I think that in our current paradigm, who's to say that's wrong? Even our nonprofit, quote unquote, voluntary hospitals, so the state calls them, they still have the same profit motive that their for-profit counterparts in other states have. Their CEOs are paid just as much. I mean, Steve Corrin at Presby makes $6 million a year. And so <laughs> Michael Dowling, who owns the property here at mm -hmm. Victor Memorial, he pulls down at least that maybe like four or five million. I mean, these yeah. executives are getting paid big money, just like their private sector counterparts because of the size and scope of their operations now. Yeah. One of the other results of the Burger Commission was that smaller community hospitals that didn't close ended up merging into larger operators. So yeah. Brooklyn Methodist is a good example. They mm -hmm. merged with New York Presbyterian. Now they're a campus of, they're the division of New York Presbyterian Hospital. The only truly independent hospital left in Brooklyn, I think, is Brooklyn Hospital. Brookdale, Kingsbrook Jewish, and Interfaith Hospital formed a new health system called One Brooklyn Health. And yeah. that was by design because all three are struggling, quote unquote, hospitals, if you look at their margins. But people use them. Yeah. <laughs> and they're primarily patients of color. They're primarily on Medicaid. 
or require charity care. And just because a hospital isn't profitable, that doesn't mean that the community doesn't need them. What happens now is these big systems will gobble up smaller hospitals. And a good example of this in the area is Long Kaj Hospital, right? Yeah. They closed. NYU promised that they would go in and do something. It's mainly getting turned into private commercial property yeah. um, with an urgent care. In Manhattan, you saw Mount Sinai take over several smaller hospitals in a smaller health system. And what they do is they'll take each location and say, these are the kinds of patients generally that come here. So we're going to beef up cardiac care in this one location. We're going to make plastic surgery and OBGYN services, the flagship services of this facility, trying to create these quote-unquote centers of excellence in mm. their various locations. And then a lot of times they'll feed certain patients to the main hospital. This all sounds very cynical, but in this current paradigm where we care about profits in our healthcare institutions, we're going to see this kind of behavior continue even as we're faced with a crisis like coronavirus, where people are going to be in truly emergent conditions coming into the hospital. And facilities that may have once had robust intensive care services may not have that capacity anymore to yeah. the level they once had. They might literally not have enough beds anymore because yeah. they made a decision to decertify beds or move beds to other locations within the system. We're always worried about cost. God forbid that we spend any more money than we absolutely have to in certain... And I know I'm, again, yeah. being a little cynical here, but... We see this kind of decision-making all the time. And in times where people are relatively healthy and we're not dealing with a pandemic, you can get away with it because yeah. a community that's relatively healthy won't need to access those services all the time. But at the current rate that we're going, I think the mayor said today when he declared a state of emergency that we could be at a thousand cases next week if that trend continues. Yeah, we're going to try to rush this episode out, but who knows what this is going to be by the time you guys are listening to it. I'm not trying to be alarmist. I think that people need to realize that rushing to the hospital is not always the first case scenario you should think of, right? Yeah. But at the same time, people who are immunocompromised, people who are older, that have respiratory issues, they are at much higher risk of developing complications due to this illness. And many of them require serious care ventilators. They need to be intubated in an intensive care setting. Yeah. And if hospitals can't scale up because they run out of beds or they don't have the capacity anymore, you're going to see a serious strain. And, you know, quite frankly, I hear it a lot from our members. They're concerned that their employers might not be ready for this. Yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit also about the kinds of health outcomes that we're expecting from Bay Ridge residents. And what could we do better? I mean, we're saying that this new off-campus ED with nothing behind it, no real hospital behind it, this stopover point is a good thing because it does add some kind of capacity. Sure, yeah. How can we make it better? One thing that definitely could happen is you could return some inpatient capacity to that facility or at least have some capacity on your operating license to put some inpatient care services there. If you're dealing with a epidemic or pandemic situation, being able to scale up and create an intensive care setting might be beneficial. Yeah. In my opinion, this hospital should never have closed because I feel like for a lot of healthcare providers, you can figure out a way to make things work with your balance sheet and your finances. And Victory was being court, like people were trying to figure out what to do with it. And I think that when cases like this happen, where you have a serious epidemic that could potentially overwhelm the system, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to say a community deserves to have a structure within it 
whether it's making money or not, that you have the capacity to address an emergent situation like that as it happens in real time without worrying about people spending too long in an ambulance, people overwhelming a freestanding ED with walk-ins, right? Yeah. I mean, like you said, we have a large senior population here. Walk-ins could become an issue where yeah. you're literally overwhelming that site if it's up and running. We don't know how this is going to play out after the flu season ends and the cold season ends. The 1918 epidemic flared up again when the next flu season started. We don't know what COVID's going to do between the quote-unquote low season and you know the next high season for flus and colds. So not having a structure within the community that can scale up to deal with the emergent issues of a critically underserved population like the seniors here are dealing with now, that's irresponsible. Yeah. So is this just a thing that's going to happen? Does the community get input? <laughs> Do they get to say like, hey, we need more than just a room where you can wait with not even beds that you could stay at overnight behind it? So unfortunately, part of that opportunity has passed. There is a period of time that the Department of Health allows the public to make comments on applications of this nature. They're not well publicized, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> And to my knowledge, you know, the local community board was not notified of this when, yeah. it, when it was happening. I don't think they gave a presentation. I'm, you know, I am a member of the community board. As I'm am a, I, and yeah. I don't remember getting a presentation right. either. And I'm on the senior issues and health committee. I don't remember them ever coming to talk with us about this in any way. That's irresponsible. That's irresponsible. And I think that, you know, we obviously still have a means to talk to Department of Health. There is a complaint form on their website. The public can be galvanized to say, we need more than just a freestanding emergency department here. But the Department of Health, in most cases, works very closely with the providers. Yeah. A lot of time instructing them what to do. In this scenario where we've seen all these closures, where we've seen services being realigned this way, the providers and the regulators are working in lockstep. And in a lot of cases, if you think about it, our Department of Health and our government has ceded a lot of control over service redesign to our providers. Yeah, They rely on them for a lot of health planning because they are the premier resource in the community. So relying on something like New York Presbyterian to be the lodestar for redesign of healthcare, I think, causes some problems. But you know, to go back to your point about what we can do, I think that we should absolutely demand that Maimonides be more clear to the community, like what they plan on doing. What's their COVID-19 plan? When this facility opens during flu season, how are they going to operate? How are they going to divert ambulances? What kind of capacity will they have there for specialists that need to be on site in an emergency department? What kinds of primary care capacity will they have there? One of the things that bothered me the most about the presentation I heard to the Department of Health, let me back up, to run an emergency department, you need to have certain kinds of doctors available and specialists available 24 hours a day. Yeah. The DOH is allowing a lot of that to happen through telehealth, which... Yeah. Sure, if you're reading an x-ray, maybe that's fine. But if you're trying to diagnose a patient's illness through a screen, might not necessarily be the best way to do it. In right? an emergency environment, too. And again, I'm not a clinical specialist, but I do think that that particular issue is something that people should be concerned about. So one of the things we can definitely do is demand that the DOH and Maimonides present a clear, defined plan of how they're going to serve specific populations. 
a plan, quite frankly, that I did not see in a lot of their applications. And to be clear, I'm not speaking on behalf of my union, I'm speaking as a member of the community. I think that as a community member, I would like to hear what their plan is because, again, I serve on the Senior Issues Committee. Seniors need to know what kind of services they can rely on at this new location. Maimonides is stepping in because they have unfortunately had to bear the burden of the impact of the closure, right? We should feel positive about the fact that they're stepping in to improve access to resources in our community. Yeah. But I think that we also need to hear from them what their plans are. Yeah. So what are some of the things that Bay Ridgeites would need more than others? How do we fare as a neighborhood in terms of like community health? Well, first of all, when you look at the New York City Community Health Survey, certain outcomes are better here than some neighborhoods because in some places in the neighborhood, we do have good density of providers and others are designated as medically underserved areas, especially a stretch on Fifth Avenue that are like that. We as a community overall on certain health indicators perform more poorly. We got a presentation actually at the community board on this. I recall like, you know, on issues like diabetes, obesity, smoking, a little worse off than the city average, right? These are all complications that could require hospitalization. Yeah. And our senior population as well. I think one thing I want to emphasize here too is that seniors utilize healthcare services at a higher rate, obviously, than the URI or the average citizen. Right? Yeah. And the other thing that I think a lot of people don't know is that a lot of them rely on Medicaid. Mm. The two highest users of Medicaid are children and seniors. There's this huge stigma out there for people who use Medicaid because you just assume that you're, you know, grifting. Yeah, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's like there's a social stigma, but a lot of seniors are what are called dual eligibles. They qualify for Medicare and Medicaid in certain services. Mm -hmm. So these folks are especially vulnerable if you don't have providers in the community that take Medicaid. And hospitals, whether we like it or not, are required to take Medicaid. Yeah. (laughs) And they're required to help you figure out how to get it if you don't have it. And if you are truly a charity care case, they're supposed to give you a means to access charity care. So seniors, many of whom don't have steady sources of income, may not have family members they can rely on. They really do need reliable care and they need reliable acute care. So a lot of senior health issues were not touched upon by Maimonides when they wrote their justification to the state for why they were building a freestanding ED here. And I'd like to hear more about what their plans are to address that particular population down here. Absolutely. Bay Ridge is only, I think, going to be more amiable to seniors. We want more senior centers and affordable housing solutions in this neighborhood. We want to scale that up and we can't scale that up if we don't have the necessary infrastructure. And to go back to COVID, I mean, we don't know how this virus is going to behave after what could potentially be the summer low season for colds and flus, right? So if it comes back, I mean, seniors are the at-risk population. Yeah. I would like to hear a long-term plan for how they plan to address these issues as they come up in the community. So other than pushing this emergency department, visit the show notes. We're going to have links and things you can do to start making these demands, everyone. So jump into the description of the podcast, click the link, and you go to our website, radiofreebayridge.org. But 2020 is coming up and everyone's talking about Medicare for all and all of this stuff. Does any of this solve the right sizing of all of these hospitals that happened in New York state and try to undo some of that damage? Yes. There's actually two ways we can talk about this. The first way we can talk about this is the national framework, which is Medicare for all. There were a gazillion candidates in the Democratic primary 
when people started announcing that they were running and each of them had a different version of <laughs> how to fund healthcare and several of them had a very different definition of Medicare for all. Yeah. Bernie Sanders' version of Medicare for all was very different from Liz Warren's because Bernie didn't really talk about how to pay for it. He just talked about a framework of how people would get covered. Liz Warren actually tried to put a price tag on it and it was expensive. But again, we're talking about cost here and this is where I think we can touch on your point. Single payer as it is defined, which is everybody now has access to a single healthcare payment paradigm, mm -hmm. is the ultimate level playing field. Private insurers, depending on which candidate's plan you're talking about, in general, private insurers become obsolete. You have a single payment system that's run by the government. And if you're a provider, you have to take it. A lot of providers get tricky about how they take certain kinds of public payer. Like, for example, Brookdale Hospital has a high Medicaid population because of who lives around them. Mm -hmm. New York Presbyterian gets to be the way they are. They do actually have a large Medicaid population, but they have this gigantic academic medical center that also has premier surgeons that want to work there. And they have a huge outpatient network that gives them a lot of money. So I think that in a single payer system, the disparities in access automatically go away yeah. because you as a patient you have a national insurance card and the provider has to take it. That's the federal solution. Everyone buys into Medicare. You pay taxes. Right? And you get it. And you get it. There is also the New York Health Act, mm. which functions in a very similar way. If you're a New York State resident, you get your New York Health Card and you get to go receive health care. There has been a significant amount of pushback from providers and insurers alike for obvious reasons. Actually, maybe they're not that obvious, but in my work, one of the drivers of cost that I've seen above all else, we talk about pharma, we talk about medical devices, which are drivers of cost. It's the hospital insurer relationship. Mm. Both parties have an incentive to make that price tag as high as they can because the provider wants to get reimbursed as much as they can. And the insurer has a profit to maintain. So the bigger the pie is, the more money they have access to. I know that's a slightly glib way of putting it, but this all kind of circles back to what we're talking about. When we're worried about cost, I mean, costs are increasing because, quite frankly, we do not have a ceiling anymore on what our providers can charge. Yeah. I think back in 97, the Pataki government did away with something called statewide charge master. That was the thing where like, oh, this particular object or device can't go over X amount of dollars. This procedure has a ceiling. You cannot charge any more than this. Yeah. The state of Maryland still has it. It's called a statewide charge master. Yeah. A return to all payer rate setting is essentially what single payer would do. Because if you have only a single quote unquote insurer to deal with, and it's the state or federal government, they get to decide what the price is. Yeah. This is where we sort of get into that really complicated conversation of, does the insurance industry deserve to survive? That's thousands of jobs. That's a significant portion of our economy. Now, insurance won't go away. You still need no. to insure your home, your car. You know, there's like, <laughs> yeah. And to be quite frank, the government would immediately, both at the state and federal level, immediately have to figure out massive infrastructures on how to deal with billing, how to deal with. And that's new there. jobs and new stuff that has to be right. built in and, order to support you know, this. Some, there are some ideas out there that talk about how we could co opt the existing insurance framework to do that for us, right? Like yeah. we could still maintain some of that infrastructure in order to facilitate a single-payer system. Again, to your original question, 
yeah, this would be the ultimate level playing field. If you are economically distressed, if you're a contingent worker, if you rely on the health exchange to get your insurance at this point, and you have high premiums, high deductibles, this mitigates a lot of that. There's a significant discussion now about wanting to keep your health plan. And I just really laugh at this sometimes because if you look at the average cost of coverage for a family of I don't want to keep it. <laughs> yeah. And I think what that conversation is really about is keeping your providers. And if there's only a single pair, like your provider's going to have to take it, right? And I think that if we're talking about a just healthcare system, single pair is the future because right now everyone talks about how in a single pair or national health paradigm care gets rationed which I think is a really good way of putting how it happens now yeah. because the people that ration care are the insurers, <laughs> right? And I mean, like we get care rationed through a paywall right now. We do. People make so many decisions about how to access care based on their deductible or based on what their copay is. And they even select their coverage levels based on what a monthly premium could possibly be. And you have these trade-offs between high deductible plans or high premium plans and one covers more than the other. And families are forced to navigate these things while doing all the other things they need to do in their professional and personal lives. And I think that removing those complications yeah. for most people would really revolutionize the way people access healthcare. And when we're talking about situations like hospital closures, it also changes the way that we talk about these yeah. things because we don't really truly understand the needs because a lot of people self-select what kind of yeah. care they want to receive based on how they can pay for it. One of the big fears about single payer is all of a sudden that everyone's going to start using healthcare, whether they need it or not. I find really that silly. really silly. And I'm drawing on my personal experience. I have been lucky enough to have good healthcare coverage. I get my physical every year. If I'm sick, I'll go to the doctor. But I'm I don't, not visiting I, yeah. for fun. And I think that a lot of people would feel this way. The times we're going to need healthcare is the time that we also don't want to worry about how we pay for it. For our seniors, especially who rely on Medicare, for example, they see the benefit of having a secure, stable healthcare payer that they can rely on, even though Medicare has its own privatization issues at the moment with things like Medicare Advantage, which a lot of seniors like, so I don't want to bash it too much. But even in a single-payer paradigm, seniors will benefit immensely because the cost of care will change. To bring it back down to you know the hyper-local level, which we always do here at Radio Free Beverage. We told a story today about a hospital that was closed and an empty facility that isn't handling capacity that we desperately needed. We spoke about why that capacity wasn't there. And then we said, hey, you know, there's going to be a slight uptick in capacity, but you can do a little bit more, but it's kind of too late. And we as a community are going to have to demand very hard to get slight increases to that capacity to serve the neighborhood better. And if that's not enough, then on the federal and state level, there are things that you could be voting for, such as single player, that will not only hopefully make that facility better, but if you live in Bay Ridge, if you're a senior or you want to stay here your whole life and are looking forward to becoming a senior in this neighborhood, you're not a pool of people that's strong enough to demand extremely exquisite healthcare service in this profit-driven system. We're kind of at the back end of Brooklyn. And if you want to see something good in your neighborhood, a single-payer system is one of the few ways of seeing that come back. I think that's well put. I think that single-payer, like I said, levels the playing field. People can stop worrying about how they're going to pay for care. And instead, we can have more discussions like this about what kind of care the community needs. Because once you remove that cost from that conversation then you can have a real honest conversation about, yeah, it would be nice if people could give birth in this neighborhood again. 
Yeah, it would be nice if our seniors could go to the hospital when they truly need it, whether it's for oncology services, whether it's for other geriatric health issues that pop up like with their joints and their bones. And seniors are high fall risks, for example. We can have that discussion about levels of care, of quality of care, and talk about redesigning our system in a fair way instead of talking about how to redesign it to maximize cost benefit. That is the power of single payer. And I think that we have some really awesome ideas at the state and federal level. We can link to the Campaign for New York Health, Absolutely. You know, which does really great work advocating for single payer in New York State. I think that one of the things that people struggle with is the practicality of it. Once you start reading about how it could actually redesign healthcare to be beneficial to the average New Yorker, in our community even, I think people will be pleasantly surprised to see how practical it actually is. You know, if we truly care about removing the barriers to access, this is the way to go. We touched on a lot today, Ed. I think we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for coming out and giving this whirlwind tour of healthcare in the neighborhood. We're going to have to do this again and really dig into a lot more details on specific issues that Bay Ridge is facing. But sure. I know. Thank you for having me. I, you know, I'm a big fan of the show. Please check out the show notes because this is something that you're going to want to do some homework on and do some additional reading. So jump to the show notes at RadioFreeBayRidge.org. You can follow us on Twitter at RadioFreeBR or Instagram. We have Facebook. You can find a bunch of ways of getting in touch with us. Any questions or comments or things that you want to see in future episodes, just let us know. And until next time, everyone, stay free, Bay Ridge.